Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. Life uh, with a mission uh, that seemed to be impossible, but when he believed his God, God led him and he became one who lived a mission that was possible. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, if you'll turn to the book of Nehemiah, we're going to begin and continue to talk a little bit about Nehemiah this morning. And I want to share with you a few things about living life, living mission possible, and how to live life and mission possible. And so if you'll look tonight, Thursday we talked a little bit, began to talk a little bit about that mission possible. Had something interesting happen this week here at the church, and and uh, uh, I don't mean to try to make everything spiritual because some things just happen because it's natural, and I don't want to over-super-spiritualize anything. But I have been, uh, ever since that happened, I've been kind of just thinking about it all week long. On Tuesday morning, uh, the preschool was getting ready to start, and Michelle called me, and she said, Pastor, there's a man that's out here behind the church, and uh, I'm not too sure uh, he looks like he is uh, not in his right mind. And uh, kids are going to start coming for preschool. Uh, you know, what should I do? I said, well, I'll be there in just a moment. And uh, I knew that there were some others that was going to be there in a few minutes. And so when I got here, uh, uh, I got here, Jacob was here and Ron was here. And uh, we walked around the building there right before preschool started. And there was a young man that was laying on the ground. He had a t-shirt on and a pair of jeans. And uh, he was on that borderline place of overdose. I've seen guys that have overdosed. And foam was coming out of his nose. Uh, he was not in his right mind. He was shivering, shaking. Uh, and Ron had spoken to him, uh, asked him to get up, tried to get up. And he began to growl at Ron and began to foam and carry on. At that time, I just I felt like he probably needed help. If anything, he needed to go to the hospital. And so I stepped away and tried to call uh, and get... Um, uh, the police here so that we could get him some help. At that time, he got up and began to walk. And as he left, he left the property. He walked around the property and freezing cold, just a t-shirt on, not in his right mind, knew that he was on drugs, knew that he had been at this place, No, didn't realize how long he had been there. Uh, he may have been there all night. Uh, who knows how long he had been there. Uh, and he began to walk away. And as he walked away, even before the authorities could get him or come here and get here, uh, he had walked all the way down the street and had kind of disappeared into the woods off to the left there across from Clifty, Clifty uh, Drive and Goldie's Farm there uh, had slipped off into the woods there. And I'm not sure if the authorities ever did uh, reach him or find him. But that bothered me all week. I thought about that all week. Well, uh, that afternoon, uh, I, I get the message and said, Pastor, uh, uh, can you come help us? Because he had defecated himself outside the door of the preschool and had relieved himself out there and uh, made a mess out there. And so uh, I got um, Jacob and, uh, <laughs> and I got Adam. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, I'm the pastor. I guess I should be the guy that cleans this up. So I went and got a shovel. And uh, I had Jacob hold the bag. And he's like, oh, don't get it on me. Don't get it on me. Oh. And Adam's like, oh, my God, who would do that? Oh, my God. And, uh, and he wasn't going to touch it. And, uh, and he just was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And, uh, and so uh, I scooped it into the bag. And, and Jacob, he, he just kind of carried it over and threw it in the dumpster. 
And uh, as I began to think about that, I thought, who would ever think that there'd be a day when you would arrive at a church and, and you'd begin to see the depravity of where men's hearts are leading them nowadays. It is a picture of our culture. It's a picture of the hour that we live in. Robbie Zechariah said it like this. He said that there's nothing so vulgar left in humanity and the experience of humanity that does not shock us anymore. But more shocking than that, there's nothing that can be done or said that cannot nowadays be explained away or justified by humanism. And that's a very powerful statement in what she says. He goes on to say, he said, we are wasting away into the uh, ethical, into ethical ghosts and skeletons. He said, uh, he said, it is like that this, uh, this, when we speak of the boundaries and broken down walls of the moral fabric of our culture, it says our bodies, which are intended to be the temple of God, has become the object of idolatry. In, in the sense of the, of the term, or in the sense of this, in that, uh, and we measure everything in our life by the gratification that comes in the satisfaction of the gratification of our own bodies. We have lost our way, and we have lost our way to the point that we have lost the sacredness of our crea- how we are created and what we were intended for. He goes on to say, even though this is the case, into this area, this situation, you and I are called as missionaries, or living stones, to make the message, whatever God places, wherever God places us, to minister, that we are becoming, we are the missionaries. He said, but we live in the most difficult time when it comes to facing a counterculture, but do not forget But we are also living in the most opportune moment of history. And it's a powerful statement. Because even though we're living in an hour when you think you could not be shocked anymore, you get shocked. But it's that moment, that moment of the greatest hour of the counterculture we live in is the greatest opportunity for the church now to shine and to be light and salt to a world that needs Christ. Robbie Zacharias says that his college meetings are larger than it's ever been. Standing room only crowds in these universities, these students that are attending his apologetics meetings. He says they're there because there's a something inside them that is searching for truth on the inside of them. And they're looking for guidance for someone to tell them which way to turn. And that is so true in the hour that we live in, the day that we live in. G.K. Chesterton said it like this. He said, the problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and founded wanting, but has been difficult and left untried. It's a very powerful statement. In other words, it's not that Christianity don't work. It's because some believe that the work of Christianity is so difficult that many don't even try to do the work that God calls them to do. Can I tell you this morning that the gospel is the greatest message to mankind ever? The biblical worldview is the only view that's going to free and change our culture and change men and change men's lives. The gospel is unique. It is unique because it contrasts every worldview that is out there. I told you on Thursday that, uh, that, that every other type of worldview or religion 
whether it be Hindu, Buddhist, whether it be Muslim, all of them are governed by certain principles, uh, certain laws. If you are a, a Hindu, you follow the Kamaic law, which tells you that you have to, to obey that law, and that law then you will obtain Marsha or Nirvana. If you're a Muslim, a good Muslim will tell you that their good deeds have to outweigh their bad deeds. And it's the same way with every worldview. Every worldview says that I get to heaven by my good works, by my righteousness, by my good deeds. But that's not how the gospel is. For the gospel is a much better covenant than that because the gospel says that we obtain heaven by grace and the mercy of God, not of anything we have done, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. By mercy, you can't earn heaven, and none of us can earn heaven. And so that's the backdrop in the world we live in, but it was also the backdrop of the world that Nehemiah lived in. Nehemiah was a Jew that was born in exile after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and he was a cupbearer for the king, Artaxerxes, who was the son of Xerxes. And he was the cupbearer, and you say, well, that's not a very important Position, but I want to tell you it was one of the most trusted and important positions there could ever be in the kingdom. The cupbearer protected the king from the danger of being poisoned and being, uh, 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 being poisoned. He was trusted. It was a trusted position. It was highly esteemed, almost as someone who would be a chief advisor to the king. He would have, because he was so trusted, he would have the ear of the king. Isn't it amazing that no matter what times there are, God is always raising men up and positioning them in the right places at the right time for the right moments of history when God needs them? Isn't it amazing God always has a man in a moment when there's famine or in a moment when the world has gone crazy? God always places a Daniel somewhere. He always puts an Esther in the right place. And so he also did that with Nehemiah as he stood by this king as being one of his most trusted advisors. Such a position that God had put him in. And the truth is, is that Nehemiah was set for life. He was in a comfortable place in the palace. He had no reason to leave it. He had no reason to answer a call to the mission field or a call to do what God. He could have remained where he was and been satisfied and been trusted and used and still could have served his God right where he was. You begin to think about this as I begin to think about this and, and, and it's amazing because here we have now Nehemiah who's, who's in a great position and all of a sudden now he gets this news in chapter 1 as his brethren has come and he, he is concerned about his people and he's concerned about what is happening in Jerusalem and his brethren come and they give him this report. He asks, what's the condition of Jerusalem, what's the condition of Israel? What is the condition of God's people? And the report from those that had came said, the survivors, in verse 3 of chapter 1, it said, and the survivors who left from the captivity and the providences are there in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah's response was, so it was, when I heard these words, I sat down, and I I wept and I mourned for many days. 
He was moved with compassion. He, he was broken. And what happened was is that there had been these exiles back into Jerusalem. A hundred years earlier, Cyrus had given a decree that allowed the children of Israel to return back to their homeland to rebuild the temple. And a guy by the name of Zerubbabel led them back into the land, and they laid the foundation for the temple. They began to lay that foundation. They began to work on the temple and began to rebuild it. But then Samaritans came in and became an opposition to the building of the temple. And it became such an opposition that, the, that they left the work and started living their own lives and leaving the work unfinished. And so the temple laid there unfinished for almost 20 years. Why people went about building and doing and carrying their own lives. They left the house of God in a place of desolation. They would not finish it because they were unwilling to pay the price that had to be paid in order to stand up to the opposition against the work. And I'm telling you, a lot of times the church sits back and lets this world do whatever it wants to do because we're afraid of the opposition that comes when we step out to do something for God. We don't want to pay the price that comes with standing for righteousness and doing what is right. And so people go about living their lives, and church can lay in desolation. It can lay in a place of ill repair. It can lay in a place of brokenness and a place of where it's not repaired. And as people go by, they get look and they go, I wonder what that is going to, I wonder where in the world they're going to finish that. I wonder what they're doing there. I wonder when they're ever going to finish. And it wasn't until Ezra took back a group some 80 years later the temple was finally finished and he took, it was 80 years before another group went in and this time they went in to set up a spiritual condition and set up a spiritual heritage. They become in and they said, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to begin to live for God. We're going to begin to do it God's way. We're going to begin to do it the way God wants us to do it. We're not just going to be the symbolism of religion, but we're going to do it the way God had called us to do. And, and Ezra led them in, and he began to set up, and all of a sudden he began to set up, and he too faced opposition. And what is amazing that years later, many years later, the condition was still the same, and Nehemiah gets the report after a hundred years. After a hundred years, they were allowed to go back into the land. Nothing had done. Nothing was established. And all of a sudden, this cupbearer by the name of Nehemiah began to get stirred. And he was part of a remnant of God. He got stirred when he heard the report of the desolation of the, of the temple and the people the Bible said in verse 3 that there was great distress. That word there means there was calamity. Those in this city were vulnerable position, reproached. He said, and under reproach, it means they were under sharp, cutting, penetrating, piercing, opposition. It's the idea of bearing the brunt of cunning words or cutting words. They were being criticized and slandered by the people and the enemies of faith. It was a tough place to be. The enemies would not let them build and would not let them rebuild. And they were under this pressure of criticism and this pressure of, of that was coming at them. And it, and it grieved Nehemiah. And he woke him up and he, he arose and all of a sudden something stirred up in Nehemiah. He was touched by the need of the people. 
And he was touched by the need of the people because we know that he was touched because the Bible said that he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. He was touched by the reports. I guess the question is this morning, are you and I ever touched by the reports that we hear of the hour in our day when we see humanity going down the toilet and to hell in a handbasket? How long has it been since we've wept over our society and wept over our culture, or even better yet, wept over our city, wept over our lost loved ones, wept over the condition of our spiritual lives or the spiritual condition of the church in itself? And so something began to happen in Nehemiah. When he heard these things, I believe something happened in him. And number one, number one, it was this. It was that Nehemiah began to step into the mission that was possible by letting God light a fire of passion for his people inside of him. If we're going to live mission possible in our lives, Somewhere we've got to let God light the fire inside of us that stirs us again to want to serve God. To light the fire inside of us to serve God and his people that there would be a passion. And he started with the recognition of the need of the people. Listen, Nehemiah was not preoccupied. He didn't live in a dream world. He heard what was said. He heard what they brought to him. He did not just ignore them. How do we know he didn't ignore them? Because he said, tell me what the condition is. In other words, he was moved by that. He was moved by the needs of the people. He was, it moved him to a place of passion that entered into his life. It, it's a miserable situation, they said. Listen, sometimes we assume that people, that it's elementary that people recognize the needs of people's lives. But I'm telling you, I, I, I've watched church people ignore the needs of people's lives for a long time. I mean, it happens. And it happens not on purpose. It's not because they don't love people, but it happens because what happens is when, when we don't see the needs or recognize the needs that are in our community, that are around us, what we've done is that tells me something that tells us that we have become too preoccupied with ourselves in order to hear the need of those that are around us. Are you with me this morning? And Nehemiah wasn't preoccupied. He wasn't pre he heard the needs and he's, he heard the needs and you hear people say, well, what problem? I didn't know we had a problem there. I didn't know there was a problem here. It's simply a no problem mentality. What it was was is that most of God's people in Jerusalem, they didn't realize, they knew the temple had been finished and they knew that things were not what they should be. But they're just like, well, we don't see a problem here. We don't see that there's a problem. And so they've been preoccupied. They've been preoccupied with their life. Listen, people who are preoccupied hates three things. They hate reality. They hate facing issues, and they hate, uh, uh, they hate asking the hard questions, and they avoid confrontation. People who live in the place of preoccupation. Let me tell you that as the church, we need to begin to ask the hard questions in our day. We need to begin to, to face reality of what's happening in our world. Are y'all with me this morning? 
Do you hear what, what's happening? Do you see what's happening? Do we recognize what is going on? Have we asked the hard questions of ourselves? Have we avoided the confrontations that need to be answered and addressed in our lives in order to be not only a church that lives on mission, but a church that knows that God has put us on mission possible in our lives? In other words, are we truly concerned about the needs of those that are around us? Are we truly concerned about them? But there was a passion that got into Nehemiah. And there's a passion that needs to get in us. There's a fire that needs to be stoked in our lives again. And we need to not be preoccupied with ourselves, but be preoccupied with those that are around us. There are many needs that are in this city. There are many needs that are around us and in this congregation and around us. If we cannot be preoccupied with church and religion and and this and that, we have to open our eyes and say, what are the hard questions that need to be answered in our And it begins with God putting a fire on the inside of us. 500 years before Christ, this man in the palace, he hears the calamity of the city, that it's in ruins. And what's he do? He begins to pray. And four months later, four months later, we read in chapter 2, four months later, the king sees that he's upset and asks him why he's upset. And he says that he's upset because his homeland, his city, his brethren have fallen into a place of desperation, a place of desolation. Jerusalem was the symbolism of protection for the children of Israel. They never thought, they felt when the walls were down, they felt they were abandoned by God. And the truth was they weren't abandoned by God because he had a prophecy that said, yet I will not forget ye. See, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand and your walls are ever continually before me, God says. In other words, they weren't forgotten. They were just the result of bad leadership. You say, what do you mean? I'm telling you, Jerusalem was laying in the state that it was because it had previous kings that weren't about the people, but they were about themselves. Solomon, the untamed passion of a gifted man. He was a man that was gifted beyond all measures, but yet his untamed passions kept him from leading the people. Jeroboam, the wanted power of a weak man. A man who wanted power, but in his personal life, he refused to discipline himself, to position himself, to have the anointing that God wanted to put on him. He wanted everybody to give him everything without having to earn none of it. Y'all hearing what I'm saying? Rehoboam was the unteachable temperament of a privileged man, of a man who had the privileges of all of Israel to his side, but he refused to be unteachable by God. He only listened to himself and refused to listen to the people that God had brought in his life. You say, well, what does that do? I'll tell you what that does. That sets a precedent around the people where the people can't grow because the leadership is not on fire. They don't see the needs. They don't know where God's going or where God is headed or what God wants to do. And so they came and they fell into idolatry. They fell into this place of idolatry and they fell into this place where idolatry overcame them. And Nehemiah saw that these walls were ravaged and taken and plundered. How does does he deal with it? How does he realize? How How does Nehemiah respond? How does he deal with it? 
How should we deal with it? How should we deal with the needs of a community or our needs of our church? Or how should we respond? Exactly like Nehemiah. He felt the responsibility. He wanted to play a role. He believed that he could make a difference. You know what Mission Possible is? It's believing that we can be a church that can really make a difference. Believing we can make a difference in the lives of people, not just make our life better, but make those whom we're around lives are better. Are you all with me? To realize that that we are are part responsible for those things that are around us. Nehemiah rose up and said, listen, I'm taking responsibility. I'm winning my city back. I'm rebuilding what belongs to God. And sometimes we have to say we're going to rebuild what belongs to God. And so the difference in Nehemiah and Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the difference was this, is that Nehemiah's heart was surrendered long before God ever used his gift. You hear what I'm saying? He was submitted, his heart was surrendered long before God ever used the gift that was in him. You know how he was submitted? I'll tell you how he was submitted. He served the king. He knew the protocol of the palace. He knew what we could do and what he could not do. He became the best at his trade. He began to do what was right to do. And all of a sudden, he became a man that was trusted and could be trusted. He was trusted because in his private life, he was pure. In his public life, he had integrity. And I'm telling you, God doesn't put his anointing on people who do not pay the price for it. And he served privately, so God decided he was going to use him publicly. I'm telling you, that's contrary to the hour we live in. Because everybody wants to be recognized publicly, but nobody wants to sacrifice privately. (laughs) Everybody wants a title, everybody wants a position, but nobody wants to start cleaning restrooms. Nobody wants to start working the parking lot. Nobody wants to start feeding people or going out and witnessing. They all want to start at the top. But God will never elevate you to a place where your gift is at the fullness of what it is until first we learn first how to come to a place where our heart is submitted to everything that we do. I don't know if I'm you're with me this morning or not, but I'm preaching it anyway. Richard Sumi said it like this. He said in his commentary on Nehemiah, it's not the mass movement that makes the change in life and culture. It's not the movement of masses. It's not the, the coalitions. It's not those that make the difference. He said what we read about in Nehemiah, we see through scripture, is that the difference that is made in life is that at, at the center of every column, every pillar that holds up the gospel, there is a person who knows his or her God and knows their God and knows where their God is going. God has always used the man. God has always used the man. God has always used the man. Ezekiel said this, he said it like this, that who will be the man that stands in the gap, that will breach the wall, that will stand in the middle and defend the things that belong to God. He didn't look for an army. He didn't look for a coalition or a group of people. Let me tell you what he looked for. He looked for a man that was willing to stand up and be like Nehemiah and said, God, fill me with fire that I might have passion for you again. 
Woo! Glory to God. I say this to you. The biggest mistake that we make is this, is that we, we will realize that we can't assume that the task that God has for us, we can't assume that we cannot do much. I'm here to tell you God can take a man and do much. You know God has used children. God has used ordinary people. Ordinary people to touch extraordinary lives and to be extraordinary. I believe it was Charles Wesley that was witnessed to by his Maravan maid of their house that witnessed to him. That brought a realization to Charles Wesley that he needed a redeemer. Charles Wesley? You mean the great hymn writer? You mean it wasn't these angels that opened up in heaven and an altar and songs went off and all of a sudden he made this glorious walk down the altar and everybody clapped? No, it was a maid that lived in his house who was a Maravan that had faith and began to share the gospel with him. And his brother John began to go to a Bible study that was held by Maravans and those Maravans, those German Maravans began to share the gospel with them. And here they had been on the mission field to America. They had done charities. They had shared the gospel. They had gone through seminary. And all of a sudden, after all those years, they hear this gospel. They began to read and hear a Bible study on Galatians written by Martha Luther. And they realized that their salvation had to come through faith in Christ Jesus. And both of them gave their life to Christ after doing religious things. Isn't that amazing? You can do religious things. Don't underestimate what God can use you to do. I said don't underestimate what God can use you to do. God is just looking for one of us, somebody to be somebody he can put his spirit in and fill with fire to do something extraordinary for him. Nehemiah was a guy that said yes. Billy Graham was asked one time, he said, I've heard many preachers, Brother Graham, and I've heard many preachers that were better than you. He said, why do you think God chose you to be the evangelist to the world? Billy Graham looked at him and said, when I get to heaven, that's the first question that I'm going to ask God. (laughs) Tory Johnson, who was a great speaker and one of the founders of Youth for Christ, was invited to speak at a high school assembly, but he could not go. He told them, he said, I'm going to send a young man to you by the name of Billy Graham. They said, well, if you can't go, we don't want, you, we don't want nobody. We're going to cancel the event. He said, no, you let this young man speak. He said, no, we, we, we don't know. He said, let him speak. Let him come. So he had Billy Graham go to this high school assembly. He sent him. Billy Graham went, and he shared Christ, and he swore Jesus, and later, uh, Tory. Johnson asked Billy Graham when he came back, well, how did it go? And Billy Graham responded, well, not too well. Too, too well. He said, only one person responded and gave his life to Christ. He said, well, did you get his name so that you could pray for him? He said, yeah, I did. It was a weird name. His name was Warren Wearsby. <laughs> for those of you that don't know who Warren Wearsby is, Warren Wearsby became pastor of Moody Church and one of the great expositors of the word in recent memory. He just died a couple of years ago. In other words, don't underestimate what God can do through you. Here is Nehemiah. Think about how God has positioned you. Think about how God, where he has placed you in life. And that God can use you and that God wants to use you. 
That God wants to use you and, 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 and touch lives through you. So number one, we understand that Nehemiah stepped into mission possible when he allowed the fire of God to come on his life and he had a passion for his people. Number two, he stepped into mission impossible when he prioritized his mission by prayer. Now, I want you to get this because this is fascinating in the scripture. 11 times in 13 chapters, we see Nehemiah say these words. He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He said that 13 times, or 11 times in 13 chapters. In other words, Nehemiah just didn't run out and do it. Nehemiah bathed it in prayer. He fell on his face and he called a fast and he began to pray. And all the rest of chapter 1, we see this prayer that he prayed. He sought God about it and began to seek God because he knew that God had the answer and the strategy for the mission he was about to go on. He didn't just run off and say, oh, I've got a burden, I've got a burden, let me do it, let me do it. He brought it before God. Do you know every mission that God gives a church or an individual has to be bathed in prayer, has to be sought for, has to be prayed for? Every mission that God gives... Years ago, I had an unusual thing happen to us, and uh, me and my pastor friend, Curtis Hurt, we were, Curtis has been here, we were in Jacksonville, Florida, we was at a pastor's conference, and we were there, and, and uh, uh, just one of the thrills of my life, because just because of the nature of it, we were eating in a restaurant that was downtown Jacksonville, and it was after one of the meetings, it was late, and as we were sitting there eating, in walked in uh, a prominent preacher, and a friend of his, and he was there, and I said to Curtis, I said, hey, isn't that Adrian Rogers? He said, yeah, that's Adrian Rogers. I said, so let's invite him over to eat with us and see if he will. So we invited Adrian Rogers and his friend, associate, he came, and he sat and he ate with us that night. I had my Bible, I got it signed, I have it in my office. I had my wife bring it to me Thursday, and, and he signed it, he signed it in my Bible. And this is the one thing that he said. Of all the conversation that we had, it was an amazing. He was very cordial and very nice. We bought his meal, praise God. And so, but he said this. He said, if you want the secret to a Christian life, he said, as you guys as pastors, if you want the secret to success, because the questions was, how did you build such a big church? How did you get such a following? How do you, you know, you could see us at Starstruck asking dumb questions, and he just wants a salad and a meal to eat, and here are these Starstruck preachers that are trying to override him with all these questions. But I'll never forget what he said. He says, if you want to be, have an unhindered Christian life, or if you want to be effective, he said, I have one question to ask you. Tell me about your prayer life. Because if you can tell me about your prayer life, I will tell you where you are spiritually. How many know that preaches more messages than any messages you could preach? Tell me where you are in your prayer life. In other words, you can see preaching and you can see people writing and speaking. And what happens is about prayer is, prayer is different because when we're speaking, we're writing and we're talking, the flesh can get in the way. The pride can get in the way. Is that not right? But in the prayer room, you are alone with God, and there's no showing off. There's no room for self-grandizing. You are with God alone. And there's a reason why God asked us to go in the prayer closets, why Jesus went off and prayed by himself. 
Because we know that prayer is vital to our lives. And prayer does three things in our life. Three things in our life. First of all, prayer, one, prayer does this. Prayer helps us recognize the sovereignty of God and unburden our hearts. That's what prayer does. Look what Nehemiah did in the next verse. Verse 5, he said, And I said, I prayed, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. What did he do? He recognized the sovereignty of God. Prayer helps us recognize the position that God has in our life. It means that he's first, that he becomes first, and it's a place where we can unburden our hearts. In other words, we come to a place of humility and a place of, of prayer. It is a place where we fall into humility, and the burdened heart leads. Listen, a burdened heart that is not given in prayer can lead us into irrational decisions in our life. You hearing what I'm saying? Matter of fact, a burdened heart can reveal to us what God's purpose is in our life. In other words, sometimes we Bird, our hearts are burdened and we don't have the patience to wait on God. And what happens is we don't know what the difference between a burden and a call is. God gives us a burden. It's a burden to pray. A burden is for a season, but a call is for a commitment to life. A place to unburden our prayers. Never make life's decisions with a burdened heart. Always make life decisions with peace. Never make life's decisions with a heart that is burdened and heavy. Always make life decisions when you come to the place of peace. Always travel the way that leads to peace in your life. And so Nehemiah recognized the sovereignty of God. He had to unburden his heart. But number two, prayer does this. It enables us to see our heart as it really is. When we get in prayer, our heart is revealed in our heart what it really is. Jacob was wanting to see Esau, so what he did, he was afraid of Esau, so he began to send Esau a bunch of gifts. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's wise. If your brother's mad at you for stealing the birthright, send him some gifts. Your wife's mad at you before you get home, bring some gifts. I mean, you know, that's wise, man. Esau was sending was, was receiving gifts from Jacob. And, and, and he was terrified of Jacob. He was terrified of who he was. Why? Because he betrayed him. He stole his blessing. He stole his birthright. And so Jacob gets with God and he gets alone with God. And Jacob is wrestling with God and he's got this burden that with Esau on his heart and he's wrestling with God's plan for his life. But God kept dealing with him about this thing with Esau and he begins to wrestle with God. And Jacob says, I am not going to go or let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go till you bless me, till you bless me. I'm not letting go. I'm in travail. I have a burdened heart. I'm, I'm not going to let you go, God, until you bless me, till you put your hand on me. My persistence, in other words, God's revealing to Jacob what he really was and what he was on the inside. And God asked this question. The God of all heaven asked this simple question. It's 
Not the question you think God would ask, but God turns to Jacob and he says, what's your name? Not the question you think God would ask. Jacob responded by saying, I am Jacob. And God said, you're right. For Jacob meant surplanter, deceiver. And the whole purpose of why God did that, why God asked that question was for this reason. Because he lied to steal the birthright by pretending to be somebody else. And God was not going to bless him until he became honest with himself about who he was. And it's in those moments of private prayer, those moments when God reveals to us who we really are. And we can hide from everybody else. And we can be on the outside one way. But when you're in that closet with God, we, you know who you are because God is always asking, who are you? And you have to answer that question. We all have to. You know why some people stop praying? I had someone in counseling tell me one time, I said, well, have you prayed about it? No, because God keeps telling me to do this. So they stopped praying. They thought the answer was to stop praying because now if they stopped praying, God couldn't deal with them about it anymore. Some people stop praying because they don't, they don't like what God's going to say. They stop praying because they know God has a call on their life and they have to say no and walk away from that call because every time they get with God, their heart gets stirred about what they really should be doing and what they really should be. And they can't answer the question that God asked, who are you? What you're going to do about it? What you're going to be? What are you going to do about that area of your life? I'm here to tell you that prayer not only brings us before our sovereign God to unburden our heart, but prayer brings us before the God so that we can see who we really are. Prayer brings us before God. The reason Nehemiah prayed was that because so that God could weave his grand design inside the life of Nehemiah. You know what prayer does? It interwoven and interweaves God's purpose for your life inside of you. When you don't pray, you live on your own strength. But when you pray, God intervenes and interwovens his call into your life and it gets in you and the fabric and the design that God has made you all of a sudden now begins to come out because the God in you becomes to change you and make you different. How many are thankful for prayer that God weaves his design in our life? While Nehemiah was praying, God was weaving the design in his life. God was weaving inside of him his call. God was showing him what his assignment was on mission. I want to tell you, I can put that up all I want. I can put living on mission all I want, reach all, teach, send all I want. But if we don't become a church of prayer, we'll never know who we are or what our call is. A famous theologian one time was debating an atheist who began to make fun of him because of his prayer life. The theologian made the case that Christianity literally has kept the world and has changed the world. And as this atheist began to mock him for those words, the Christian said, I have a question for you. 
If you were out in a desolate place here in America, say you were out in the middle of the streets of Detroit after midnight or L.A. or New York or San Francisco in the middle of the night in the roughest neighborhoods of the world and your car breaks down, and your car breaks down in the middle of the night, and when you get out, you see these four big individuals coming at you, these four barely guys that are look mean, and it's the dead of night, you're by yourself, here comes these guys at you, your car is broken down. Would it make a difference to you whether or not that you found out that those guys were coming from a Bible study or not? <laughs> Listen, if you're a praying Christian, your faith will carry you. If you're not a praying Christian, you carry your faith. And let me tell you, when you carry your faith, you become exhausted because you're not meant to carry your faith. God, as in you, is meant to carry your burden and to carry you in faith. And what prayer does, it puts you on the shoulder of God. Hallelujah. So we see the passion for people, his priority and mission by prayer. And thirdly, he was willing. This is where I want to get to tonight, this morning. He was willing to go and touch. He was willing to go where God asked him to go and touch those who he asked him to touch because he himself had been touched. God touched Nehemiah. When he heard the report, his heart broke for his people. And God touched him. And everyone in this room that's born again, and you've ever been delivered by anything, you've been touched by God. God has touched you. God has delivered you. God has done something wonderful in your life that you could not do for yourself. And God didn't touch you just for you. God touched you so that you would go and touch somebody else with the same message that touched you. Nehemiah told the king, I can't take it. I've got to go. I've got to go because I've been touched and I've been called. And in prayer, I've been revealed where I'm supposed to be. And the Bible said that Nehemiah went. And the Bible said that he went in among the people. He went in among it. The Bible says at the end of chapter 2 or verse 10 of chapter 2, it said that when, when he got there, so I came to Jerusalem and I rose in the night and a few men that were with me, I told no one, my God put it on my heart to go to Jerusalem and he said, it was just me, just me. And he walked around the city. He got in the middle of the rubble. He got in the middle of the destruction. He got in the middle of the distress. He got in the middle of the heartbreak. Because God touched him. As God calls you, listen, let me tell you what living on mission is. Living on mission is going and touching others because we have been touched. He went into the ruins. He went to where the ruins were. He went to the middle of the ruins. Is Heather here this morning? Heather. Heather's mother and father. They're missionaries to a remote island called Molokai in Hawaii. It's a real remote island. 
It's a, absolutely, it's a beautiful island. It's not commercialized. It's got some of the highest mountains in all of Hawaii and the world. It's a beautiful place, but it's not commercialized. God called them to go there. They went there. They've been there. They're going to go back. God called them to Molokai. But years ago, a man by the name of, of Joseph Damon went to Molokai. He only went there because his brother Cliff was called there. And, and he could not go because he passed away. And he promised his brother when he died, he would go to the island of Molokai to minister. So when he got to the island of Molokai, he got there and he realized that Molokai was an island that was a leper colony. That the people that were there were lepers. And Joseph Damon began to minister to the people and his heart began to break for the people. He began to minister in the midst of that of that, of that colony, began to minister and saw change in people's lives, saw the change that was taking place. He realized one day when he was in the kitchen, he was in the kitchen and he was pouring himself a hot cup of tea and the water spilled out and splashed over and fell on his foot and he realized that he did not feel it. Being confused, he poured it on his foot again, realizing he could not feel the hot water that was burning in him. And every day, in every service, he would get up in front of that leper colony of those people, and he would speak to them. And his first words, my, feather, my fellow brethren, my fellow Christians, but he changed his language that day when he got up and he said, my fellow lepers. He realized when he had died, those people took his body, was going to bury him, but the, but the nation, uh, the nation where he was from, Belgium, where he was from, wanted his body back because he was a national hero to them. And they said, let us bury him because he touched us. He came to us. You didn't want him, but he came to us and he touched our lives. We should be able to bury him. And finally, they made an agreement with the government of Belgium. They let him cut off his right hand. And they sent his body back to Belgium, but they buried his right hand right there at a burial site there in Molokai. It's still there today. And the reason they cut off the right hand, because they said, we want to stay in touch with the hand that had touched us. Living on mission is going and touching those who would not be otherwise touched unless you were willing to live on mission and to touch others because you were touched yourself. He had to get there. He had to get in the midst of it. Adam, would you come? He had to get in the midst of the people. But in order for him to go, there had to be a preparation. Living on mission, there has to be preparation. You just don't go. We just don't, we just don't do. That's what I'm talking about. When I talk about these five spiritual principles of spiritual competence. And I talk about these five principles of core values that we're talking about. You don't just go out into the world. You have to allow God to prepare you. To train you. Speak to you. Put in you what he wants to put in you. Paul had to be aside for three years to be trained. Jesus himself, before his baptism, had lonely years. Moses was put on the backside of the desert. In other words, our preparation arms us with the truth. 
And I want to close with this. Here's the one thing that we have to avoid. We have to avoid what we call the paralysis of pessimism. This is what Nehemiah had to fight the whole time he started building the walls. There's the paralysis of pessimism in people's lives. You know what that is? It's when somebody gets up and says, I feel like God wants me to go and put shoes on people that don't have shoes. And somebody's standing by going, they don't need those shoes. Tell them to get a job and get their own shoes. How are you going to do that? You don't have any money. How are you going to serve God? You know what you were before you came to Christ? How are you going to do that? How are you going to fulfill what God's called you to do? You're just an old river boy from Ludlow, Kentucky. How in the world do you make a difference? You're just a farm boy from Madison, Indiana. How are you going to touch a world? And I'm telling you what happens in a church that starts to move toward God and tries to, and when God has destiny on it, they'll put people like they did around Nehemiah and those that were building the walls, and there'll be those that'll walk around with, with, this, with, this, with this paralysis, paralysis or a pessimism, where they try to paralyze the work of God through their negativity and the words that they say. Am I talking to the right crowd? I want to tell you, when I got saved, everybody said, what do you mean he's going to be a preacher? He can't even get the work on time. Huh? What'd they say about you? He's, he was a drug addict. There's no way he could ever do anything for God. He can't even talk right without fumbling his words. He has, does not have the right education. I will tell you, Moses didn't either. Moses stuttered when he spoke. Y'all hearing what I'm saying? Some of y'all, we've allowed the pessimism of people keep us from doing what God wants to do in our lives. But I think it's time we break the glass ceiling. I think it's time that we live on mission. You know what I hear in this town all the time? Well, there can't be no church that's effective for God over 200 people. They'll just fuss and fight and break up and split up. That can't happen in Madison. We're a city of church splits. Ha, 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 ha. No, that's what a preacher told me one time. Oh, we're a city of church splits. Ha, 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 ha. They can't be effective. They can't change there can't be a church that's full of God and on fire. There can't be a church that's able to live on mission and do what God's called them to do. Man, I'm here to tell you, God can do whatever people will allow God to allow him to do. And I'll just tell you, I, I have, over the last six, seven years, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes. As your pastor, I made a lot of mistakes. I made a lot, I have, I have, I have, and I come before you this morning and I repent for those mistakes because there's decisions that I made and things I've done that if I had to do it over again, I probably would have handled them different ways.
But I'll tell you how I handle it. Because I've decided in my life that I'm going to bring an area of discipline in my life that I've never had before. Why? Because I want to go where I've never gone before. And I want you to go where you've never gone before. I'm getting my health back. I said I'm getting my health back. I'm getting my right mind back. I'm spending more time in prayer. I'm going to be like Jacob and I'm going to grab the horns of God's altar and say, God, I will not get up until you bless me. And he may say, what's your name? And I may have to confess a few things. I may have to let go of a few things. I may have to search inside me and find some things that have been some hindrances to my life and things that I've allowed to take place that have kept me from going higher. Because the truth was, Jerusalem laid in ruins, not all because of the people and their idolatry. They didn't have good leaders. And sometimes you can look at a church And a lot of times a church will go where the leadership goes. And I'm just telling you, we're not where God wants us to be. And I don't know, maybe that's been leadership. I don't know. But I'm going to find out. Stand with me if you would this morning. When John Wesley was five, six years old, he was caught in a burning house. He was the son. He had 18 siblings. His mom and dad thought they had got everybody out of the house, but John Wesley was stuck on the second floor in the middle of a burning house. A neighbor ran over and let the family know he was still in a bedroom window that was on the second story house engulfed in flames. No way in. Nobody had a ladder. So this neighbor, what he did was he gathered a bunch of people and he went over to the side of the house and he began to put people on top of the shoulder. And they made a human ladder up to the window of John Wesley. And they pulled John Wesley out and pulled him to freedom as a little boy. If you read his biography, the title of it is a is a, is a brand brought out of the fire. It's a testimony of God's deliverance of him in that burning house. They brought him out. And what delivered him was those he stood on the shoulders of those who rescued him. But later, a whole movement would stand on the shoulders of John Wesley. Hallelujah, Jesus. I guess my question this morning is, as we get ready to pray, Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love upon the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn, with inextinguishable blaze and tremble to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Jesus, confirm my heart's desire 
to work and speak and think for thee. Still let me guard the holy fire and stir up thy gift in me. Ready for all thy perfect will, my acts of faith and love repeat. Till death thou endless mercy seal and make my sacrifice complete. How powerful is that? Maybe you're here like me this morning. You're realizing that there is a mission that God has for you. A mission that he has for me. And that we realize this morning that God has a mission for us, but it's not mission impossible. It's mission possible. And we have to be willing. We have to be willing to have passion. We have to be willing to prioritize our life with prayer. But most of all, we have to be willing to touch those because we've been touched. It really is a life on mission. It really is a life. Am I living out what I believe every day? Am I spending time with God every day? Am I sharing Jesus regularly in my life? Am I sacrificing for the kingdom? These are the questions that we're asking. You say, was this something that Jesus did? Hebrews 4 tells us this. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has been raised through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot touch with the feelings of infirmity, but with all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. We don't have a high priest whom we cannot touch. But because we've touched, we must touch others. I want every eye closed and every head bowed this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you don't know Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your Savior. Ask Him into your heart. Make Him Lord of your life. Maybe you've not been saved. Maybe you've done religious things like the Wesleys did, but then you come to the realization that you've not been saved by grace through faith, and you're coming to that realization this morning. If you would like to receive Jesus as your personal Savior, just lift your hands. We would love to pray with you this morning. Anybody here would like to receive Christ? Ask him into your heart that your life would be changed, never to be the same again. My second question to you this morning, and I'm going to ask you to respond and come forward. How many would say, Pastor, we're with you. We're going to live on mission. We're going to step into mission possible, and we're going to do it, and we're going to step with you, and we're going to recognize the fact that God needs to put a passion in our heart for God. You say, I want my passion back. I want my passion back. I want my passion back. I had a passion for God. I had a passion to serve. I had a passion to do for the kingdom and life and things. Bog me down and head me down. I've lost that passion. I've lost that fire that is in me. And I want that fire back. I want that passion back. I want it to come back in me. I need it again. I need a fresh touch from God. I need a fresh touch. God is able to do. I'm not going to listen to the, to the pessimism. I'm not going to listen to the pessimism that says, oh, 
They'll never be able to do that. That church will never be able to do that. Church will never be able to reach people. That church will never be able to do. I'm here to tell you that we're going to do what God calls us to do. Come high water, and I don't care what the devil says. We're going to do everything God asks us to do. Maybe you're here and you say, Pastor, I'm going to pre-prioritize my life in prayer. I'm going to come and I'm going to reprioritize my life in prayer. I'm going to recognize that God, I'm going to be like Jacob and hold on to God and say, God, please touch my heart. Touch me today. Touch me. Show me. Show me in my life. Show me, God. Wrestle. I want to wrestle with you until you ask me what my name is. Until you bless me. I want you to come this morning. I'm going to pray, God, until you weave your design into my life, until you weave all of those things into my life. But mostly, the third response this morning is, say, Pastor, I want to touch people because I've been touched. I'm going to touch people because I've been touched. You're not doing this for a church. You're not doing it for me. You're doing it because God has touched you. And because God has touched you, you're going to believe God to put you in places where you can touch others. And the truth is, some of us have touched others. Some of us have done the work of God. And that's fine. That's good. But we have a mission. There's a mission. We have a mission. We have a mission. And we're mission possible. We're going to be mission possible. Jesus. As you have come down to this altar, just begin to talk to God this morning. Just begin to talk to Him. Just begin to pray and talk to Him. Talk to Him about why you came down. Talk to Him about why you're here. Talk to Him about why you made this step. Talk to Him. Say, God, I don't understand some things. God, I don't understand why people act like they do or why they've done what they've done. I don't understand everything. But God, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to be what you want me to be. I want to live life on mission. I want to live life with a purpose. I want to live life. I want to be called out. I want to be. I want us to be. I want us to be a church that's different. I want us to be a church that really does touch people. That don't just talk about touching people. But we do touch people. That we do change lives. That we do care. That we do care about people. And where they are. Jesus, come on, talk to him. Talk to him. Talk to him about what you're here for. Lord Jesus, maybe if you're like me that's at this altar and you just feel the heaviness of repentance come on your life like it's been on my life the last few weeks. God, touch us. God, touch us. God, touch me. God, touch me. God, touch us. Fire come down on us for the passion for your people. Who really cares about that young man that laid all night in our back gravel, the back of our church? Who really? Do we really care about an overdosed young man? Today, where is he? I don't know where he is today. But he's got a mama and a father and he's got a family that cares for him and probably praying for him. And here, he's laying on the back steps of the church. He's just a few steps away from his help. 
He's just a few steps away from deliverance, just a few steps away from the God who created him, just a few steps away from God's work in his life. As he walked down that road, I knew I couldn't just go get him because he was too violent. I knew I couldn't go apprehend him. He wasn't in his right mind. But as I stood and walked, I thought, how many people are like that young man that walks away and just walks down and he disappears into the woods ever to be forgotten by a world, ever to be forgotten by a church? What are we here for? What are we here for? What are we here for? If we're not going to live on mission, what are we here for? If we're not going to live on mission, if we're not going to step out and do what God's called us, why have we gathered? Why have we come into this place? We can get religion anywhere we want. I'm telling you, I'm ready for the fire. I'm ready for the fire of God to fall on us. I'm ready for the fire of God. I'm ready. I'm ready to let go of the petty. I'm ready to let go of the, of the mundane and ready for the fire and the river of God to flow through our lives and begin to consume us like a firebrand that God sets on fire for the world. Who shared Jesus this week? Who shared Jesus? Did you share Jesus this week? Have you lived out your Christianity this week? Or have you lived in obscurity? Have you lived in a place where nobody knows who you are? Have you touched somebody's life this week? Have you bought somebody a meal? Have you sat and talked with somebody? Have you loved on somebody? Or have you just lived like religious people do with the callousness of heart and let people just fall out on their own to their own demise? I'm telling you, there's an anointing coming on a church somewhere where God is going to raise people up that when they pray for people, they'll be healed. They'll be transformed. They'll be renewed. They'll be like that demoniac man that when he was prayed for, he was put in his right mind. Is there such a people? Is there such a people? I don't know. Is there such a people? Well, we're going to find out in 2020, is there such a people? Is there such a people? My brother got saved last week. I want to tell you. Come here. Come here a second. Come here. I love this guy. I don't know him, but I love him. I'll tell you why I love him, because he stood up here, and I saw the conviction of the Holy Spirit all over him, the presence of God all over him. I hadn't seen that in many years. It's been a long time since I'd seen conviction get a hold of people like it was on him last week. I'm telling you, the week before he came and we prayed for him, he stood there in tears, and I knew, but the Holy Spirit told me to hold it. But last week, God got a hold of him, and his whole countenance is different this week. His whole, his whole nature and countenance is with him this week. Giving his life to Jesus, changing his life. Do we really care? Do we care? Or do we care? I, I mean, do we really care? Does it really matter? Now, let me ask you, how many of you men are going to help disciple him? It's one thing to clap that he got saved, but how many of you are going to step up and be a friend to him and help him walk the way he should walk? Who's going to pray for him and stand with him and be there with him? See, it's a lot easy to get people saved, but the hard thing is, are we willing to walk with people in dark places and help them get to the place to where they really walk in freedom?
This, this, this is the mystery. This is the secret of this church. And the problem is we haven't walked with people. That's why the back door has been wide open. The people come in and get touched and touched by God and, and, and leave out of here because they're not discipled. Not anymore. Not anymore. We're not closed. Not anymore. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.